Let's pray together. O Lord, in Revelation we see that the song of Moses that we'll hear from in a moment is the song that that we will forever sing of the Lamb. That He is great and marvelous. That Christ is great and marvelous. O triune God, that You are holy. That there is none like You. You're high and lifted up. You're worthy of our, our worship and of our praise that we've just offered in our singing and in our praying and in our hearing Your Word read. And Lord, as, as Your children, as, as we just sang, as Your children who can call You Father, we pray that You would turn our hearts. Turn our hearts to You and God, we ask that you would shape our minds about you by the power of your word. And Lord, that your spirit would help us for for Christ's sake to worship you and to love you more for who you are as our holy God. We pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Amen. Well, whenever we describe the attributes of God, as we've been doing these last number of weeks in our series, God's Attributes, there's always the the danger of of describing God and His perfections, uh, of those things becoming kind of abstract and distant and things that that are hard to grasp because they seem so above us. And then they kind of stay that way. And the, the topic of God's holiness is especially prone to that kind of category for us. Kind of merely treating this idea of God's holiness as something that's merely uh, kind of philosophical or abstract rather than than thinking of God and knowing God who is a holy God as also a God who is our friend and our Father. God is not merely some distant and other God who is uh, separate from His people and is not personal and relational, but He is both a God who is holy and He is near to us. He is pure and He is a friend of sinners. That is our holy God. And so as we've done this morning, it's, it's fitting for us to praise God and to sing to Him just like Moses did in Exodus chapter 15. And just like we read and, and heard from in Revelation. Turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 15 where we'll spend some of our time this morning thinking about God who is holy. In Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, we see the song of Moses after God has flexed his mighty arm against the Egyptians and crushed them in his might. 
And Moses does what every good Christian should do, what every good follower of God should do when they see and behold the mighty works of God. He sings. He sings a song. But he not only wrote this beautiful song, but he then led the people of God in the singing of the song that he wrote. And it is good to talk about the attributes of God, certainly, but as one author has said, it's even better to write them in poetic lines, set them to music, and then sing them to God. And they say, until we have done this, we have not yet achieved the goal of theology, which is worship. It is adoration of our great God. And so may we worship him as we feast on all of his beauty in his holy word this morning. Read with me as we read the text from Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15. We'll read verses 4 through 12. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. Speaking of God's enemies. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like Led in the mighty waters. And then our verse. Who is like you, O Lord? Or O Yahweh? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. What does it mean that God is holy? That's our attribute of God for the morning. And to be certain, it is a vast one. It is a massive topic. And as we think about what it means, we need a bit of a run-up to our topic of God's holiness. And really, the Old Testament lays the foundation, as, as, does, as do many of uh, uh, of theological issues they find their roots of course in the old testament and for us as believers we see them fleshed out as new covenant believers in the new testament but the old testament lays the foundation for what it means that god is holy and our understanding of it and as we see in in exodus here this is a significant attribute of god in fact, up till this point, the, the, the description of God as holy has only been used one other time, I believe. I believe it's one other time. And, and, and that's when uh, the ground on which Moses stood at the burning bush is described as, you remember, holy ground. 
Now, there was nothing significant about the sand or the dust that Moses stood in at that bush. Now, was there? Other than the fact that God had said, This place on which you stand, where I am dwelling and speaking to you, this is mine. And as you are in my presence, you must know what kind of God I am. I am a holy God. The psalmists describe over and over, over 30 times in the Old Testament, you see this, but in the Psalms especially, God is the Holy One of Israel. Now, we haven't described or yet defined what it means that God is holy. The psalmists call him the Holy One of Israel, especially in Isaiah. We see this. Isaiah uses this term that God is holy 26 times in his prophecy in Isaiah. Over and over he's described as holy. But the the term holy, kadosh, as, as you know, kadosh, 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 holy, 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 from Isaiah 6. The term holy, which has its Greek equivalent in, in the Greek text, hagias, has, has the idea of something that is distinct. Something that is unique. Something that is separated from the common things. And so you think about the ground on which Moses stood at the bush. This was a unique place on all of planet earth in that moment. Because God was there with Moses in some way. Speaking to God. You remember that scene, kids, from the prince of Egypt? And God's voice booms out from the bush. And Moses is thrown back against the wall of that cave where he was standing. Now, not everything in the Prince of Egypt gets it right. That is a gripping scene. We watched it a couple weeks ago in our home. But that place was special. It was unique because God was there. This term has the idea of something that is separated from the common or even the profane from a human experience. There was clean and there was unclean. For the Israelites... And they were to purify themselves from from the things that God had said were unclean. The term holiness has the idea of something being utterly pure or or without any moral deficiencies. And in that way, we know that only God is holy. Only God has no moral deficiencies. And yet, as we'll see in a little bit here, we run up into a challenge in the Scriptures because God not only describes Himself as holy, but who else does God describe as holy? You and I. His own people. Even other things, vessels and bits of clothing and and people who hold positions like priests. They had holy garments. But even those things were to depict a theological reality that God himself is unique, distinct, pure, sinless, unlike you and I. And so those concepts of God being distinct and separate, unique, or you could say he is other than everything. He is completely unique from everything in existence Those things describe God's holiness perfectly. 
But many theologians, and in fact, as you look at holiness in, in Scripture, holiness is often linked to God's name kind of like an adjective. It's describing all of what God is like, even in the midst of a bunch of his perfections, even as we read in Exodus chapter 15. So in ways, God's holiness is a summary description of who he is. You take God's power, you take God's wrath, as we heard last week, you take God's mercy, you take God's jealousy, his love, his compassion. All of those things describe his otherness, his uniqueness, which is his holiness. And so that's what we see in the biblical text over and over and over again, that he is altogether different, that he is altogether set apart, he is unique. And yet, God, who is sinless, who is pure, who is unique and separate from us, in a sense, is also the God who is near to us. And so that raises one of the greatest questions in all of the Bible is how can a holy God dwell with unholy people like you and me? How is that? How is it that God who is pure can dwell with that which is unpure, those who are unpure. Not only that, how is it that he loves us and that he cares for us, that he has compassion upon us and that his wrath isn't always being poured out on us every moment, even though we do experience it in our world. Instead, he is near to us. How is it? This is the wonder of God's Holiness Church. And this is the wonder that we are to revel in, to dwell in, to, to settle in as we study God's word, that God would allow us to know, not only to know him, but to enjoy him, to have fellowship with him. A holy God. Stephen Sharnock, a great theologian, said this holiness is the beauty of God's attributes. The beauty of his attributes. If God's attributes are painting a picture, it is of his holiness. It is of his uniqueness, his distinctness. Maybe an even more helpful definition is this. That God's holiness means that he is set apart. Maybe you've heard that before. That God being holy means that he's set apart. God is set apart by his glory and for his glory. God is set apart. He is unique by His glory. All of the things that make Him who He is, He is set apart as an individual who is unlike us. But He's also set apart for His glory. God is distinct on purpose. God is in love with His own distinctness such that he longs for other than anything else to display his beauty, his perfections. And that is what he loves most, to display what he's like. God's holiness means that he is set apart by his glory and for the purpose of displaying his glory. In other words, you could say that who he is, is holy. He is unique. He is distinct. He is sinless. He is pure. 
And he's set apart because he, as we saw a few weeks ago, in his jealousy, in his longing for attention and affection, which is where we find our safety. Because as we draw near to him, we receive forgiveness, we receive mercy. And as he longs for that, he, he's set apart because he longs and is committed to displaying who he is and all that he does. And so this is our holy God. It is the beauty of God's attributes. This is what it means that God is holy. And as we gather up all of his attributes that we could imagine, we see a God who is glorious, who is fearful, who like Moses when he had to step back from the bush, who as the disciples when they stood before glorious angels and holy angels who are reflecting the glory of God, they have to fall on their faces. So should we fall on our face before this glorious God, this holy God, and worship Him. Well, this morning we're going to look at a few key texts to answer two questions. First, as we've just answered, what does it mean that God is holy? And then what does it mean for us? How does God's holiness change us? Or you could say, how does God's holiness guarantee our holiness? Well, in Exodus chapter 15, let's look at the text together. In verses 1 to 21, as a summary of what Moses is saying, we could say that what, God, what Moses sees about God's holiness, his, his glory that makes him beautiful, Moses praises God in this text for his eternity. His eternity. In, in this one song of Moses, Moses uses God's name, Yahweh, if you were to read it through and count them up, 13 times. Now, in our English Bibles, we just read the word LORD, but you see that it's all caps, L-O-R-D, and when translators are, are, are writing God's name like that, L-O-R-D, they are referring to, that is a, a, a reference to, in, in the Hebrew text, Yahweh. This was his name that he gave to the Israelites and to Moses. Remember when, he's, when Moses said, well, who should I tell Pharaoh who has sent me? He says, tell them, I am has sent you, Yahweh has sent you. Now, every child, kids here, every child has asked, where did God come from? Who made God? Well, what Moses understood in praising God, who is Yahweh, is that God had no beginning. God is eternal. God is eternal. The names that that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush And throughout the Old Testament, as he related to his people, is Yahweh. And it means that God is self-existent. God said, I am. I am. I never had a beginning, nor do I have an end. I just simply am. He is self-existent. God was not created. He never came into being. He is eternal. He's unchangeable. Yahweh is his name. The Lord is his name. 
I am is his name. He has always been and will always be. But Moses also praises God for his power, which again, taking all of these attributes, make up God's holiness, his uniqueness, his distinctness. Look at Exodus 15, verse 6. Moses praises God for his power as it relates to his holiness. He says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Remember what happened at the Red Sea? You remember? Moses walks to the edge of the water, and the Israelites are losing their minds because here comes this flood of Egyptian soldiers with their chariots and horses, spears and swords in hand, ready to wipe them out at the edge of the sea. And they're saying, great, look, here they come again. Why didn't we just go back? They continue to grumble, even even up to their, their very dying moment. They grumble against Moses and against God. But you remember the scene. Moses stretches out his staff, and God opens up the sea. And he holds back the waters with his what? His mighty right hand. He shatters his enemy. A few hours later, as the waters come crushing down on top of them, never to be seen again, until their bodies floated to the shore, God is powerful. That's maybe one of his most obvious attributes. But again, he says, your right hand, O Lord, or O Yahweh, was glorious in strength, you could, you could say, when it shattered the enemy. Moses knew that God was powerful in his holiness, in his uniqueness. But he also knew this. Look at verse, the second part of 6 and 7. Moses praised God for his wrath, which is part of his holiness. The second part of 6, look at the text. He says, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries and you send out your fury. Or you unleash your burning anger, you could say, and it consumes them like stubble. God sent out his fury like a flame and it consumed them. Why? Because God would not tolerate the sins of the Egyptians anymore. The sins of Pharaoh, his disobedience against God, and his worship of false gods. His worship of himself as though he were a god, which is exactly what the Egyptians thought. But God wasn't also intolerant of the Egyptians' sin. He also very severely disciplined the Israelites. His own people. I've been reading through Genesis and Exodus with my kids at night. And over and over again, God disciplines them. He's patient with them. And then he swallows them up in the earth. He's patient with them. And then he sends snakes. Remember that? And they all get bit. Not all of them. But a bunch of them get bit. Until they look at the snake up on the pole and they're healed. God strikes people down dead. In a second, he gives them leprosy. In his anger, God is a wrathful God, but he is rightly so. His wrath is just. Even the text says that Yahweh is, in verse 3, a man 
of war. God is a man of war. But also verse 11, Moses praises God for his supremacy as it relates to his holiness. His supremacy, look at verse 11. Look with me. He says this, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you? Answer, no one. The rhetorical question is, who is like our God? Who is like Yahweh among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? The answer is no one. He is unparalleled. He is unique. He is supreme. And this is a description of his holiness, his supremacy. And this leads us to this the great significance of his holiness in, in judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh and the salvation of, of Israel at the Red Sea. He was supreme. The gods of the, of the Egyptians were nothing. They were, they were figments of the Egyptians' imagination. They did not exist. So who is like Yahweh among the gods? The answer is no one. There are no other gods. He is supreme. But then we see in in verse 11, Moses declares that God is majestic in holiness. God is majestic. Look at the text again. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? He is majestic in holiness. What does majestic mean? Or you could say glorious. Well, we think of a king, don't we? We think of a, a majestic and an awesome king. And here we we see our our word, holy, put into action. He's set apart. He's unique. He's perfectly and completely pure. And the text tells us he is awesome in glory. Just as the Exodus was intended to display. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? How does the Exodus prove his holiness? Only God could do the wonders that God did. Only God could do the miracles that he performed. Only God could save his people from the hordes of the Egyptians. Only a glorious, holy God could do those things. It speaks of his, again, his otherness. The Egyptians' gods could not do that. Even the, the so-called magicians of Egyptians who tried to replicate some of the, the miraculous things, whether through black magic or satanic uh, forces or, or simply just sleight of hand and things like that, they could not perform or outperform Yahweh who would not be outdone to display his glory. And so this song ends, look at verse 18. The song ends, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, God is glorious in holiness. And it's because He is a king unlike any other king. He is majestic unlike any other king. He is awesome, unlike any other. He's glorious in holiness. 
He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's unique. He's pure. Unlike the gods of the world who are immoral. Unlike the gods that we would fabricate in our own minds. He is completely pure. And all that he does is good. And so this song in Exodus is a theological summary of the Lord's holiness, of Yahweh's uniqueness and distinctness, his otherness. Brothers and sisters, this is our holy God, the holy and unique and glorious God that Moses knew and the Israelites knew as he displayed his power before them is the same God that we know and have seen as we look to Christ and as we look to the cross. How do we see the glorious acts of God on display? We look at redemption. We look at the fact that God sent His Son into the world to save unholy, unclean people like you and I. And when we look to the cross, we remember that a holy God died on a cross in the place of unholy people. Jesus was not some innocent, uh, innocent third party, kind of innocent bystander who, who just kind of happened to be drug along and thrown up on the cross. Jesus is God in the flesh. Yahweh. And if you remember, in John chapter 12, in fact, turn there with me just, just briefly. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 Jesus has been teaching. And we see in in verse 40 this quote from Isaiah chapter 6, which is where we're going in a moment. Isaiah chapter 6, you remember, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And later in the text, we read this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Who is this Lord of hosts and what has he done? The Lord of hosts that that Isaiah spoke of, that Moses knew as Yahweh, and Isaiah speaks of as Yahweh, it says this, He, speaking of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 6, has blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes. Remember Isaiah's mission to go and preach the judgments of God and the salvation of God and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now listen to this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And who is him? Who is the one who would save and to heal? Well, that's Jesus Christ. Verse 37, it says, Though he had done and done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Fulfilled about who? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, And then we saw our text. And then Isaiah says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, speaking of Jesus, his glory and spoke of him. But nevertheless, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him, of Jesus. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. And so as we turn to 
the next text in Isaiah chapter 6, we see that Jesus is the answer for us, for how can we know this holy God? Jesus is the one who came to heal. He came to save broken sinners in fulfillment of the text in the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6. Here's the second text we need to look at in light of God's holiness. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6 with me. And in a sense, Moses' words in in Exodus 15 serve as kind of a commentary on Isaiah's vision. And we're just going to kind of move through this quickly, but here we see the Lord is majestic in holiness. And Isaiah gets a glimpse into what God is like, what Yahweh is like for all of history to read and to see. Isaiah chapter 6. Read the verses along as I read. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And then verse 3, look at the text with me. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What do we see about this holy, holy, holy God? Verse 1, we see that he's on a throne. Our holy God sits on a throne which speaks of his power and his sovereign authority. In verse 1, we see that he is also high and lifted up. And what does that indicate? Well, that indicates that he is above and he is separate from everything and everyone else. Look again. What do we see he is wearing? We see that there is a robe. His robe is a, a symbol of his authority and of his power. And this robe, what does it do? It fills the temple. Which indicates that that he himself in his holiness and his glory makes this environment majestic. And not the other way around. God does not have to, he doesn't dwell in buildings. God fills everything with his glory. But verse 2 we see, look at verse 2. What do we see about God's holiness here? We see that he's attended by seraphim. Uh, This is a category of of angels that's only described in this text. Although it seems like in Revelation, these are the creatures that are being uh, spoken of. But what do they do? What is their job? What is the job of the seraphim? Look at verse 2. Each had six wings as they stood uh, above Yahweh. And with two he covered his face, and two they, they covered their feet, and, and they flew with two other wings. And all that they did was call one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so Isaiah is hearing and seeing these seraphim flying around, protecting themselves, and, and defending God's glory as well, and singing the praises of this holy God. He's attended by seraphim whose only job is to sing the praises of God. 
And they themselves are are magnificent heavenly creatures, and yet they must cover themselves from the direct gaze of God. Even the greatest beings in the universe outside of God protect themselves from God's majesty and His holiness. And maybe we could even say, maybe part of what they're doing is, is shielding God's majesty from their own finiteness. They are creatures created. And they care about the holiness of God. But look at verse 3. We see the threefold cry, holy, holy, holy. And as, you've, as you know, I'm sure, but when we see, this is the only attribute of God, the only description of God that is mentioned like this, holy, holy, holy. Whenever see good, 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 or mighty, 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 or wrath, 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 we never see that. But it raises this attribute to, to the highest level. God is holy. He is extremely holy. He is extremely pure. He is completely and utterly unlike anything else. He is the holiest. And so when the angels affirm that the whole earth is full of His glory, they're kind of bridging the gap between heaven and earth. Here we have this majestic, holy, holy, holy God who in all logic should not be dwelling with people. Completely pure. How could He dwell with us and not be infected by our impurity? And yet, it says that the whole earth, even after the fall, is full of His glory. His perfections are on display in His creation. His purity is on display when we look at the snow-capped mountains when we look at the, the, even at the, at the pond in Cameron Park, the, the pure white feathers of a, a swan, we see glimpses of his beauty, even in fallen creation. And here in this world, especially through his Son, we see that a holy God dwells with sinful man. And so in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah depicts the Lord as a great king. A pure king, a righteous king. And just as God's holiness launches the angels into worship, I mean, just think of that. Imagine the volume of angels singing in heaven. This eardrum shattering volume of these horrifying angels. Not as though they're monsters, but in splendor that does not match the splendor of Yahweh. Imagine the splendor of this king that launches these angels into worship. What should it do to us? Well, it should do to us what it does to Isaiah. It should humble us. And what does it do to Isaiah? It doesn't only humble him in that moment in just reverence, but it humbles him to service. It humbles him to serve God for his glory. 
Isaiah was overwhelmed, wasn't he? He was overwhelmed with fear. He says, woe is me. He pronounces a, a curse on him because he knows that he's unclean. And he stands in the presence of a, a, a holy God. Verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so it should cause us to be humble, shouldn't it? It should humble us to say, Lord, we are not like you. We do not think of you as we ought to. We do not appreciate your purity as we ought to. We do not understand the seriousness of our own sin. And we don't. We don't comprehend the magnitude of our sins and their offense against a holy God. We take for granted that God calls us his children. That he can be to us a father. We take for granted that we're Christians. But that it should not be so. Because of our sin. And so Isaiah was overwhelmed with fear and with humility. And he says, woe is me. And was made to serve his king in the hardest circumstances. You can see that in the rest of chapter 6. But does it do the same for us? Does it humble us to, to consider the holiness of God? What does it mean for you and me? What does this mean? How does God dwell with holy people? Well, in Scripture, we see that God's, God's holiness is God being who he, was all, he has always been. God has always been perfectly pure and unique and other. But in Scripture, we see that our holiness, as, as it describes us, is, is us becoming who we are in Christ. Did you know that the New Testament describes God's people as holy. In fact, that's one of Paul's favorite descriptions of God's people. In fact, the, one of the most sinful churches in the whole New Testament, the Corinthian church, and if you read 1 Corinthians, you just think, man, how could, this, how could these people even be Christians? And that's a good question. But Paul calls them at the very outset saints. And we get the word saint, it's the same word, uh, hagios, that is translating the, the Hebrew word, kadosh, holy. He calls them holy ones. But the reality is that we are, even though we are called holy because of Christ's work in our behalf, we are also becoming holy. We are holy, but we're becoming holy. We're becoming who we are. This is called sanctification, holiness, pursuing holiness, the pursuit of holiness in our lives. As we stand back like Isaiah and like Moses in light and view of a holy God, we should step back and say, Lord, who am I that you would call me holy and how should I live? What does this mean for me? Well, God's desire is that we would be holy, that we would grow in holiness. And this is called progressive sanctification. Even though we are holy, we're declared holy, we're declared righteous before God because of Christ, He intends to make us more and more holy. And what does this involve? It involves a lifelong struggle, church. Do you struggle with your sin? 
Do you struggle with discouragement as you look at your imperfections and your impurity? Of course you do. If you're in Christ, you are discontent. There's a holy discontentment when you look at your heart and when you look at your life and when you look at your devotion to Christ. There should be a holy discontentment there that drives us to God who is holy and says, Lord, make me more holy. I want to be more useful for you. I want to be useful for your glory. And this is what it means to be holy. Remember, set apart, distinct, set aside for specific, unique use. And this is how God intends to use us. As believers, we are becoming more and more what we are. And how do we, how do we know that? Well, we see that in a really key text, Romans chapter 6. Turn there with me, Romans chapter 6, verses 19 to 22. Romans 6, verses 19 to 22. The New Testament teaches that Christians are involved and responsible to actively pursue holiness. And Romans chapter 6 gives us some very helpful and encouraging language to understand this. Romans 6. Verse 6, look at what he says. He says, we know that our old self, our old sinful self enslaved to sin was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if holiness, pursuing holiness in light of God, declaring us holy and righteous in Christ, if pursuing holiness is becoming what we are, well, what this text says we are is that we are no longer slaves to sin. That's what it means to be holy. So how do you become what you are? Well, what does the text say in verse 11? Look at what it says. We know what we are. We're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Do you think of yourself? Do you consider yourself daily as dead to sin? Sin used to be what you lived for, but now you're dead to sin. You don't live for sin anymore. You could say, that old life, it's dead to me. And sometimes we've heard that said in really hurtful, hateful ways about people, right? Oh, they are dead to me. That's how we're to think about our sin and about our flesh. No longer longer are we alive to sin, but we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ to live for him. Look at verses 17 and 18. What are you? Well, verse 17 and 18 says, You who were once slaves of sin, you are set free from sin. And verse 18, having, become, having been set free from sin, you are slaves of righteousness. You're a slave of righteousness now, believer. And so, what does it look like to become who you are? Well, now in verse 19, he says, So... In light of who you are, 
This is what you're to be doing each and every day, holy saint. Present your, your members or your body parts, your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There's our word, leading to holiness. We need to be presenting each and every day ourselves to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm yours. Use me for your glory. If that's not our devotion to the Lord, it needs to be. But we need to say, Lord, I set myself aside for your, your glory today, just if you, as you did in my salvation. I present myself to you as a slave to righteousness. In the church of Corinth, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 6.19 Here's, who, here's how Paul describes who they are. He says this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be what? Saints. He says this. Later in chapter 3, he says, God's temple is holy. And he says this, You are that temple. You are, church. Brothers and sisters, we are the temple of the living God. Our lives or where the, the holy God of the universe of Scripture is, is, is working out His glory, is displaying His glory as His people live holy lives. So what do we do? Well, later in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he says, glorify God in your body. Even your body. Young men, glorify God in your body. Young women, glorify God in how you Live, young men, and how you dress and how you speak and how you act. Young women, the same. Older men, and how you spend your time and what you view and what you read and what you talk about with your buddies at the gym. Glorify God in your body. Why? Because He has made you holy. And so, you are to be holy. There's more that we could see and say there. Here's just some practical things. Spiritual maturity or holiness, spiritual maturity springs out of holiness. As John Brown, he's a Scottish theologian, said, he said, holiness boils down to a definition that we can all understand and pursue. Listen to this. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations enthusiastic fervors or uncommanded austerities. You can look up that word later. He says this, instead it consists in thinking as God thinks and willing or desiring as God wills. God's mind and will are to be known from his word. And so, far as I really understand and believe God's word, God's mind becomes my mind God's will becomes my will, and according to the measure of my faith, I become holy. And so what are the primary means that God uses day by day uh, to, to conform us to his holiness? I'll just mention three briefly. God uses primarily his word, prayer, and fellowship. God uses his word to, to sanctify us. We are people of the book. Is that you? Are you devoted to the word of God? John 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them. Make them holy. Your word is 
truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You will not be sanctified, brothers and sisters. I will not grow in holiness if I'm not devoted to God's word. The word of God, the Bible, is God's revelation of himself to us. And he sanctifies us through it. First through the gospel that saves us. Remember the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. But then, you remember what Colossians 3 says, as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we grow. We grow. It's something that we do on our own, but it's also what we do together in relationship to one another. The text in Colossians 3 says that it's to dwell among us. It's plural. Let it dwell among you all. Read the word together. together. Pray the word together. Send text messages of Scripture to one another to encourage each other as you fight sin. Prayer. If the Bible is, is, is the way that God has communicated to His people, prayer is the way that God has given to us to communicate to Him. We're to pray without ceasing. The Christian life is one of hearing from the Word and speaking to God. And this is normal life for us. This morning, we've thanked God. We've, we've praised God. We've confessed our sin. We've made supplications and intercessions for others. We pray. And what we do on Sunday mornings, we do to, to model to us each and every week as, as believers and as brothers and sisters what we ought to be doing during the week. This isn't just something we do when we gather. But we do it each and every day. And so, may we grow in our prayers because, as someone said to me this week, spiritual battles are not fought with words. They're fought on our knees. Spiritual battle over sin is fought on our knees together in humble, dependent prayer. As we struggle, as we, as we suffer, as we experience the, the, the pains of grief and loss, even this last week, we can do a lot of things to come alongside people, but what hurting people need most is our prayers that their trust and confidence in the God who holds their salvation securely for eternity would be strengthened. We need to pray. Finally, fellowship. We grow in godliness amongst the people of God and in the community of God. And here's the key not in isolation. Not in isolation. We will not grow in isolation. The Proverbs say that the man who isolates, isolates himself seeks his own destruction. Don't do that. Don't let sin go undealt with in your life. Don't let it fester. Don't let bitterness grow and, and fester into a wound that's gushing over and, and infecting and affecting others and, and robbing God of His glory. Don't do that. Let's enjoy fellowship together. And so, what do we do with all of this? God is holy. And what do we need to think about as we close? Church, is our worship sluggish? Is our obedience half-hearted? Are we distracted by the world and its worries? Have we shrunk back from opportunities to speak up as, as a witness to the Lord? 
Church, let's seek a renewed sight of God's holiness in his word. Let's seek a a renewed view of God and his perfection and his beauty and his purity that drives us to live godly lives so that we can be useful in the world. This is why Christ kept us here. He's sanctifying us to be a sanctifying influence on the world as we preach Christ. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 says this, Sanctify the Lord as holy. Let him be our fear and let him be our dread, and he will become a sanctuary to us. And so when we honor the Lord as holy as we find him in Scripture and ask God to give us a passion and devotion to him together, we will see and do what the seraphim did. We will praise God and we will grow as we pursue him together. Let's pray. Father, we need this renewed vision of you. We need to know that what it means to be a Christian is to magnify you, is to magnify your beauty, is to seek to take in all that you are from your word day by day as we let your word dwell in us richly so that we don't forget who you are so that we don't forget that you have saved us to live holy lives in our work as employers, as bosses, as employees, as mothers, as wives, as singles, young men and women, as children. You've made us that we might display your beauty and your perfection. So God, we pray, open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to not forget that you are a holy God, pure and spotless, and that you have saved us to be your holy people. May we grow in Christ's likeness together for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.